The instruction set of a computer defines a low-level programming language for moving information throughout that computer. In the early 1970s, the prevalent instruction set language used a large vocabulary of different instructions. One justification for a large instruction set was that it would give a programmer more freedom to express the logic of their programs. Many of these instructions were rarely used. Think of your favorite programming language, or your favorite human language for that matter. What percentage of words in the vocabulary do you really need to communicate effectively? We sometimes call these language features syntactic sugar. They add expressivity to a language, but they may not improve functionality or efficiency. These extra language features can have a cost. Dave Patterson and John Hennessy created the RISC architecture, Reduced Instruction Set Compiler Architecture. RISC proposed reducing the size of the instruction set so that the important instructions could be optimized for. Programs would become more efficient, easier to analyze, and easier to debug. Dave Patterson's first paper on RISC was rejected. He continued to research the architecture and advocate for it. Eventually, RISC became widely accepted, and Dave eventually won a Turing Award together with John Hennessy. Dave joins the show to talk about his work on RISC and his continued work in computer science research to the present. He's involved in the Berkeley RISE Lab and works at Google on the Tensor Processing Unit. Machine learning is an ocean of new scientific breakthroughs and applications that will change our lives. It was inspiring to hear Dave talk about the changing nature of computing, from cloud to security to hardware design. Dave Patterson, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for inviting me. I want to start by discussing a foundational concept in computer science, which is the instruction set. What is an instruction set? Well, it's the most important interface between hardware and software. So for software to talk to hardware, it has a vocabulary. And the name of that vocabulary is an instruction set. And the words of that vocabulary are instructions. If I'm a programmer and I am using a small instruction set in contrast to a large instruction set, how is that going to affect the code that I write, the size of that instruction set? Well, that's kind of the debate that happened 35 years ago, <laughs> is what's going to be the impact on programmers. Since programmers shifted to writing in high-level languages, starting with Unix, there was kind of no more excuse to write an assembly language. Programs are pretty isolated by that. The technical question was whether these simple fixed size instructions of the so-called reduced instruction set computers were going to result in bigger programs than the more sophisticated ones. Kind of ended up over the years with a small tweak to the so-called risk architectures. They'd be about the same code size. So how does the instruction set affect the speed that a program can be compiled or the efficiency of which that program can be run? So in terms of compile time, usually compilers are limited by I.O. rather than the actual instructions generating. But the big deal, which is what the debate was about, was how much faster it would run. So it turned out for the way we built processors in the 80s that a more sophisticated instruction set, a richer set of $5 words in the vocabulary wouldn't take as many instructions to execute. Say uh, it would take 
three-fourths of the instruction of these simpler architectures. But the big deal was that the simpler architectures could read those instructions five times faster. So the net win was about a factor of four better for the RISC architectures in the 1980s. How does the size of an instruction set affect the debugging process for a programmer? Yeah, let me just put a qualification here. It isn't so much the size of the instruction set is how simple the instructions are themselves. So if you think about as a vocabulary, the debate was kind of these big polysyllabic words versus very simple words. So the reduced meant kind of simple words as well as kind of possibly fewer instructions. I'm really glad you pointed that out because I think one example that I heard you gave, I was watching some talks you gave recently, there was something like a, I guess, a polynomial simplification instruction that was very rarely used. You gave it as an example where it's a very complex instruction and it's rarely used, so you don't necessarily need that in your instruction set. Right. What actually happened, you know, in the Going back to the 1960s is they simplified the design of computers by kind of building an interpreter inside the computer. And we called that interpreter a microprogrammed. And what was one of the cool things about the microprogram is it was really easy to add very sophisticated words to the vocabulary, very sophisticated instructions, such as polynomial evaluation. So it didn't take a lot of hardware to add that kind of cool instruction, but it turned out that it was almost never executed, right? So if, if we needed polynomial evaluation all the time, it would have been useful, but it wasn't useful because it was hardly ever executed. So it was extra cost to provide that sophistication that didn't result in all that much benefit. So that led to this kind of reactionary movement of the risk architectures that fundamentally what they did is they got rid of that little interpreter inside the computer, the little microprograms. We made those go away and you kind of, software went directly to the hardware, which got performance advantages. So back in 1979, you were an academic, you were getting your PhD at Berkeley. Nope. And (laughs) Uh, let's see, I graduated in 1976 from UCLA with my PhD. And by then I was a professor at Berkeley in 79. Got it. So so I, I know that at some point you took a break from academia to work at DEC, and that was when you saw... Yeah, it was the fall of 79, right? I took a leave of absence from Berkeley to, to do an industrial leave to help DEC with you know bugs in microprograms. Right. So when you saw these issues with microprogramming that were in existence in industry at DEC, were these things that academia was unaware of? I think they were unaware of how buggy it was. Uh, that's why they brought me in. It, it was a lot of work to get these microprograms right. And, you know, it made sense for uh, the type of computers that DEC was building, the mini computers, which consisted of thousands of, of chips. But kind of what struck me is when I came back from sabbatical and during the sabbatical is what's going to happen if the microprocessor guys follow the mini computer guys and these kind of sophisticated instruction sets given all the bugs i was seeing in these mini computers what are we going to do with microprocessors if they if they also get so sophisticated that with these giant microprograms uh, that could be buggy and so when you came back to berkeley with that observation from your time at deck you wrote a paper that proposed 
a computer architecture that was optimized for a smaller number of frequently used instructions. Is that correct? Well, if you want to get, I don't know if the full history matters, but I actually wrote a paper saying, hey, we're going to have to build microprocessors that allow you to repair microcode. And the ironic thing is that paper was rejected because the reviewers felt it was a stupid way to design computers is to have microprocessors that had to be repaired in the field. So because that paper was rejected, that led me to start thinking about architectures that didn't have those microcode interpreters for microprocessors, and that was the risk architecture work. Now, did you doubt your ideas when they were rejected, or did you just feel like you had to reframe similar ideas in a perhaps a different wording or a different paper? It wasn't... Oh, I was sure I was right, and in fact, historically, I was right, is <laughs> Intel, which the x86 architecture, which does have a lot of microcode, eventually did put microcode repair mechanisms. The thing that got me thinking was that the reviewers thought having instruction sets that were so complicated that they had microcode bugs wasn't a wise instruction set for microprocessors. And so I kind of, in my mind, I had two facts. Like if you build sophisticated instruction sets, it's going to have bugs that you have to repair microprocessors that have to have bugs repaired in them in microcode are not such a great idea. So what do we do next? And that led to the proposal of simplifying the instruction set so we didn't need the microcode interpreter. And then as I kind of the questions were, well, how many more instructions would you have to execute if they were simple? And how much faster could you read them if they were simple? And that took a couple of years to figure out. Many of the best ideas in science can seem heretical at first, and they can get misunderstood initially. Actually, just thinking about this, I I interviewed Leslie Lamport one time, and and his I think his first paper on distributed systems, the Paxos paper, was rejected by ACM, I believe, and then he reformatted his ideas or rephrased them, and he got you know he got them accepted and became kind of the father of distributed systems. How should a computer scientist react when they get their ideas rejected? How should they react? <laughs> well, you know, it's a common story. Kind of the, uh, the problem is when you're younger, you don't quite understand how the reviewing system works. But basically, in a reviewing system, if you're speaking gospel in the paper, it's easier for people to evaluate your ideas, and they're more acceptable. And in a reviewing system, like there's five people, say, reviewing your paper, when what you're proposing is contrary to conventional wisdom, it's going to take an enlightened reviewer to be able to see the value of that. And a common reaction in a, re- a reviewing system will be several of the reviewers won't get it and think it's, it's the wrong thing to do. So it's a pretty common thing with somebody who's got a big idea for them to be rejected. I think Tim Berners-Lee, too, says... Uh, his first paper on, you know, on World Wide Web was rejected by the World Wide Web Conference, basically. So it's a common reaction. And a Turing Award winner, Jim Gray, said the same things. All his best-known results were rejected the first time, but all his follow-on papers were accepted. So it's kind of a standard. So what should a computer scientist do? If you believe in what you're doing, you shouldn't be discouraged by rejection because you know you could if it's a big idea you could be in uh, good company you wrote a textbook called computer architecture a quantitative approach this is a textbook that's in wide use 
was that an attempt to quantify some of those ideas that had been subjectively evaluated by that review committee that ended up rejecting them early on? It's a little more than that. So the two academics who led the risk effort were John Hennessy at Stanford and I, and you know we shared the Turing Award for that. So what it captured is at the time is computer architecture was often done kind of based on experience and intuition. It wasn't so quantitative. So in teaching that material at Stanford and Berkeley, it was pretty dissatisfying to use the textbooks to describe here's computer X, look, here's the list of features it has. Computer Y, in contrast, has these other features. And, you know, and it basically you're supposed to kind of absorb all prior designs. And then, then when you got a chance, you'd use your gut to come up with what you think is a good design. So that's, and not only was it bad in the classroom, I think it was bad engineering to do things that way. Kind of the reason it happens is just the pressures to get something done in a company then and even now is, well, if we take a year to figure out what to build, you know, that's a year that we could be building something. So there's urgency to get started and then people can skip the step where they investigate the ideas. So John and I uh, decided we were frustrated by it. And then by the end of the decade of the 1980s, once the risk ideas were starting to catch on commercially, we decided it's time to write a book that would try and capture kind of the way we were building things, which had a more quantitative approach. And we were definitely driven by taking this kind of catalog description of computers into something where there were formulas and experiments you could run to decide if computer A or approach A would be better than approach B. You're now spending a lot of time on machine learning applications, specifically the chip design for machine learning applications. How quantitative is the evaluation of of deep learning architectures, I guess, on the software and on the hardware side these days? Well, to me, it's like (laughs) reliving my history. I kind of feel like I was, you know, a professor at Berkeley for 40 years, and then I retired and but have started working part-time at Google. But I feel like I'm repeating my history here in the machine learning. So one of the big problems in the early days of computer architecture was the lack of good benchmarks. And so what happened in the 1980s is uh, there's this effort called SPEC, which was a consortium of companies in the Unix marketplace that got together to agree on standard benchmarks that they would all run so that they could everybody would agree how fast something was. Before there were standard benchmarks, they'd have companies like HP versus companies like uh, Sun, and they would argue, well, my computer is a 10 MIPS computer, and, and those guys are liars. They say they're 10, but they're really nine. So that didn't do much for the marketplace when the customers were told we're good, but all the other guys are idiots. And so the Unix community got together and agreed on a standard set of benchmarks, which was called SPEC, which they've refreshed every few years over in the last uh, 25 or 30 years. And so once there were standard benchmarks, that led to all kinds of great things that inside of companies, they could prioritize what's the right products to build. Uh, Academics had benchmarks that they could use to come up with new ideas. Uh, compiler people could tune their architectures to these compilers. So it has, if you have a good set of benchmarks, there's, it kind of accelerates progress in the field, frankly. So come to machine learning, and you know, uh, Google's building hardware, NVIDIA's building hardware, 
Microsoft has ideas there. But there was only uh, trivial programs that everybody had run. And, and even when they had the same name, it wasn't necessarily uh, exactly the same program with exactly the same data set. So it was back to the bad old days. As a result of that, uh, a group of us, uh, you know, repeating history, <laughs> have decided to do a standard set of benchmarks for machine learning. And the name of this effort is MLPERF, P-E-R-F. And it's a particularly exciting time right now is the first deadline for Melmel Perf is, is uh, I think, 10 days from the day. Uh, everybody's going to turn in the results uh, who's going to participate on November 9th. And then after some number of weeks of checking the results, by the end of November, we'll release the results. But we'll see fair head-to-head comparisons between Google and NVIDIA and Intel. And I don't know how many people are going to participate, but it, it's sure to be a, an eye-opening set of results when they hit the surface. I think I want to come back to machine learning a little bit later. On the, the risk front, your ideas were eventually validated. Risk became widely used. It changed the world. You won a Turing Award. In retrospect, when you think about the path that you took to developing risk, was that deliberate? Were you looking for a world-changing idea, or were you simply studying what was interesting to you and you stumbled upon this insight? Well, when I joined Berkeley as a, you know, a new faculty member just after getting my PhD, they told me what Berkeley wants to do is have positive impact in the world. We don't count papers. We count impact. I loved that advice. <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear. And so I took that to heart. And so we wanted to, you know, in baseball terms, you know, we're not bunting for singles. We're swinging for the fences. So we were trying to do big things. Uh, and we thought... Our ideas made more sense for microprocessors. Maybe for mainframe computers and for mini computers, these rich instruction sets with microcode interpreters were a good match, but they weren't a good match for microprocessors, which were changing fast with Moore's Law. We wanted a simpler architecture that could track the technology. So we thought our ideas were better ideas. And we thought if we were right, you know, that basically all microprocessors in the world would use them. And we believed in Moore's Law, so we thought microprocessors were the future of the computing industry. At the time, you know, mini computers and mainframes dominated, but we thought, you know, Moore's Law was going to put microprocessors front and center in the computer industry. So we expected this to have a giant impact and to work well, but, you know, that was us in the ivory tower making these arguments, and we had to see whether industry was going to follow. Since that time, you've continued to do research and development involving both academia and industry. You were part of the Berkeley AMP Lab, which led to creations of companies like Spark, uh, well, I guess projects like Spark and Mesos and Tachyon, and each of those have become companies, or some, in some cases, multiple companies have come out of them. Uh, this lab was active from 2008 to 2017. When you think back about that period of time, 2008 to 2017, what were the fundamental problems that the AMP lab was trying to tackle? Well, it, gets, it was actually uh, some of those things got started in the lab before that, which was called the RAB lab, and they, it was just the lab I led, and then the AMP lab continued with those ideas. So Spark and Mesos started at the end of the RAD lab and went forward for historical accuracy. You know, we were trying to make it easy to create next great internet services in the RAD lab. And uh, we thought uh, brought together machine learning, P2 
people. Mike Jordan kind of, my joke is Mike Jordan is the Mike Jordan of machine learning. And he was involved in the beginning and the Spark actually got started with machine learning people getting frustrated trying to build do machine learning using systems like MapReduce in the cloud. It was clear the cloud was the future. We were all in on the cloud, but the software to do machine learning on the cloud was uh, just didn't work well. It was really hard to do. So that problem inspired uh, Matei Zaharia and others to develop Spark to make it much easier to do machine learning. And then it, it you know, Spark does a lot of things besides being sh- machine learning in the cloud. So I, th- I think that's the historical setting that... Uh, led to these innovations. And then Mesos, you know, what's it mean to have an operating system for the cloud? That was another kind of opportunity uh, that was clear if you believed that the cloud was the future of the computing industry. Matei still feels that machine learning is too hard. The the APIs or the application layer that a programmer has access to are still too difficult to operate relative to the gains that you can get from programming machine learning applications, what needs to happen to make machine learning more accessible? That's a great question. Matei, by the way, is also involved in the MLPerf effort that I mentioned. But it's interesting, you know, I've seen a few technological revolutions in my lifetime. And what's different about machine learning is it seems to have very high impact and certainly commercial value, but it's hard to learn how to do. <laughs> it feels like more of an apprenticeship program that you, you have to be near some of the great centers to figure this out rather than you just pick up a book and start using it. People are building lots of software stacks that uh, claim to make machine learning much easier to do, but it remains um, you know, a, a technology that's not easy to learn. The learning curve is pretty steep. So I don't think it's only the software stack. It's something about the technology itself that is hard to apply. Since the AMP Lab has, I guess, closed, it well, or evolved, I guess it evolved into the RISE Lab. So you are now part of the RISE Lab. That stands for Real-Time Intelligent Secure Explainable Systems. One tagline from that is, technologies that enable applications to make low latency decisions on live data with strong security. So that idea of low latency decision making on live data with strong security, is there a fundamental trade-off between the latency of a system and the security of a system? I don't know if that's true as much as a lot of research projects have ignored security. (laughs) I would say, I mean, we could have made... There's no reason security couldn't have been a focus of the RAD lab or the AMP lab. It would have fit in there. It's just when you do a research project, the style we do it at Berkeley is we pick these five-year research projects. And the reason they last about five years is it kind of matches how long graduate students are here before they graduate. And also we believe, uh, you know, it's a fast-moving field and it's hard to uh, predict the future, you know, more than seven or eight years in advance it's hard enough and so every five years we want to give us ourselves a new shot to see where we think where the goalposts are so i'd say we think given you know what happened in the industry you know that the red lab and amplab helped happen in industry that the next set of challenges were around live data rather than uh, batch processing and really quick decisions and then, you know, security is just so embarrassingly terrible 
And there's some hope that with more flexibility, with hardware support and ideas like enclaves, that maybe we could make some progress on this problem. The other side of it is if we really going to deploy this technology and it's going to make quick decisions, you know, there's going to be a lot of private data involved in that. And, you know, uh, we need to protect it. So I think some combination of the opportunity and the need uh, has the reason we brought uh, security in there. But it's all, you know, it's been a big problem for a long time. You used a term enclave. What is an enclave? It's a phrase that uh, Intel popularized. I believe it means to have a protected area where, kind of like the trust zone, but it's a protected area. Only the software inside of that protected area can get access to pieces of information. So not even the operating system can get access to things that are protected. So you try and keep everything you know, encrypted so that not even the operating system can access it, but it's just inside the enclave you can do that. And the hope is by having a small area that you have to trust, that'll make lead to more secure systems. Uh, so Intel's name for their enclave technology is SGX. But there, you know, there's a bunch of people hopeful that this type of technology will let us make some progress in security. When you're looking at the technologies in the RISE lab or the projects and the people that you've talked to, what kinds of, are there any solutions that you're particularly optimistic about? Because I've been covering some shows around this topic, like Bruce Schneier, for example, has been talking about the dangers of connected cars and sensors and the smart power grid and and this is like the same infrastructure that we would love to modernize. We would love to have machine learning be optimizing our power grid like it's optimizing Google's data centers. But the more we do that, the more we're exposing those areas to smart systems, networking issues that could expose them to to hackers or just erroneously architected machine learning models. What's the solution here? Or what kinds of promising solutions have you seen in the Rise Lab? I agree. It seems like opening this up is opening, you know, a can of worms, or maybe that's not uh, scary enough, a can of snakes. So I think partly there's some ideas that gives one hope, but it's also, you know, I think it's the process. So I, you know, early on in computer architecture, there are some protection mechanisms in the hardware that made things more secure, like 30 years ago. But the operating systems of the time uh, didn't use them. They were less concerned about security, probably, and more about ease of use. And they were somewhat expensive to have these protection mechanisms, so they kind of atrophied and fell off, and they went away. And maybe the hope was software, maybe through formal program verification, was going to make things secure, but clearly that hasn't happened. So I think partly the reason for the RISE Lab is the recognition that if we're going to make progress in security, hardware is going to have to help. And I don't think we're going to get there without changes to hardware. So one of the things we're excited about uh, that came out of one of the other labs at Berkeley is this idea of an open architecture. And this particular one is called RISC-V for the fifth risk project at Berkeley, but it's an open architecture. You can think of it somewhat like Linux is an open operating system that is industrial strength. It can run, has a real software stack, you know, runs real apps, but everybody can use it. And why this might be exciting for security is you can, you could run a version of RISC-V, not fast, but fast enough to run software on what's called a field programmable gate array. So this is kind of pliable hardware that's slow, but you can change 
every day, every you know, every hour. So the hope is you'd put a risk five architecture idea out there with whatever your security ideas are built into this kind of pliable hardware and you could subject it to attacks. So for me as an outsider for security, I see people criticizing things. I would say, oh, look, Microsoft, you've got bugs or look, Oracle, you have bugs, but they aren't synthesizing. They aren't creating artifacts that they claim is secure and test them by seeing if people can attack them and whether they can defend those attacks. I think the RISC-V technology makes it possible for anybody who has a great idea, not just people who work for ARM or Intel, but anybody, to get one of these, modify it with their ideas, and put it out on the internet and see if it survives attack. So it's kind of the argument is not some breakthrough idea, but a new process, a new approach to let us test ideas of security so that we can make uh, you know progress on this problem. You're now working on TPUs at Google in some of your time. So this is a domain-specific chip architecture for machine learning. That's what a TPU is, Tensor Processing Unit. Why do we need domain-specific chip architectures for machine learning? Yep. Great question, because <laughs> software people shouldn't like this, right? Is special purpose architectures that are going to get more heterogeneous. How come we can't just keep buying Intel processors and make our software stack go faster? Well, those were the good old days. <laughs> Basically, what's happening, there's the end of Moore's law. So the number of transistors per chip isn't doubling every year or two like it used to. There's a lesser known fact called Denard scaling which is you know, a question you should have been asking is if you can double the number of transistors per chip every year and those transistors are using electricity, why aren't our chips burning up? And Denard observed is what happened is that we lowered the voltage that distinguished between a zero and one every time we made the transistors smaller. So actually in a square millimeter, the power remained the same despite having more transistors. So it got more energy efficient. Well, about five or eight years ago, Denard scaling stopped working. Uh, and so the power per chip went up. So the combination end of Moore's law and the power going up per chip means performance has plateaued. We Nobody has a great idea of how to secretly under the covers make general purpose processors run faster like Intel builds. So in Hennessy's in my textbook, the first figure plots the improvement in performance or, annually and what's happened over the six editions it's gotten flatter and flatter and in this last year it went only up three percent so that's doubling every 20 years so if you're a programmer and you're sitting there waiting to buy the next intel processor to make your software go faster you're gonna have to wait a long time <laughs> so what's left what's left is as far as all architects and john and i think this is not general purpose so we'll find a important area, build hardware for that thing only, and see if you can accelerate that piece. The rest of it, you know, uh, you won't worry about, but the piece you care about, you can try and get big factors of performance improvement. Of course, machine learning itself is a broad area, and I believe that today the TPU is used for all kinds of machine learning applications. Are we going to need more specific versions of machine learning chips? Uh, no, I think machine learning is is very exciting area for a bunch of reasons. One of it, it's just ignoring the architecture stuff. It's an exciting area, right? The, you've heard these stories about the main conference. Two years ago, it sold out, you know, after it 
three months and last year it was one month and then this year it was 11 minutes, right? So there's huge interest in machine learning. But machine learning at its heart right now is got uh, pretty simple uh, computation models of basically so-called tensors or two-dimensional rays or three-dimensional rays computing. So matrix multiply is a big piece of, of what the uh, machine learning is about. You know, that's music to architects' ears. You know, uh, matrix multiply. Well, we we know how to make that go fast. So, what's exciting from an architect's perspective about machine learning? Here's a very important area that is pretty widely applicable. You know, people are trying machine learning all across the industry, but at its heart, the computation model is relatively simple. So, that's an exciting. Uh, threads going on and uh, the TPU you know Google's had three versions the first version of the TPU which was done in 2015 deployed in 2015 you know if you use Google use it every day and they've announced two more versions of it and this is a very exciting area what's going on right now I'd say uh, it may get more specialized one example of that specialization for machine learning, there's really two phases. There's the learning, where it, you know, you're training the neurons to do what you want them to do, and then there's after they've learned or after they've been trained, you want it to start doing stuff, predicting it, and that's sometimes called training and inference. So certainly, particularly for embedded devices, inference is what you want. Typically, you're going to train it in the cloud, but inference would be in all kinds of gadgets, phones, all kinds of sensors are going to have inference uh, things in them. So there'll be that separation for sure. But but in general, you know, the architectures are probably similar. Although if you look one layer deeper, these companies all have different bets. So Google is building really big, powerful multipliers. NVIDIA has thousands of threads. Microsoft is betting on field programmable gate arrays that you program themselves. So we're seeing kind of a Cambrian explosion of architectures of different attacks on machine learning. Not that it's a fundamental, it's just everybody's got their own opinion and the right way to go. And we're, you know, going to see some exciting progress. Now with inference, you can have these issues where you need to parallelize training of a model across a gigantic data set or you might end up having a, a model that's so big that you have to break up the model into multiple machines. And then uh, once, so that's during the training process. During and once training, it's, right. During training, I might have said inference accidentally. So that's, that's the training process. And then during inference, you know, you, you might have some latency guarantees that you need to fulfill you, and other constraints in the inference process as well. So do we need domain-specific architectures for like the, the, the systems that are consuming the models and then other domain-specific architectures for the ones that are training the models? You know, I th- certainly if you train, you can also do inference. Uh, but it does make sense to have inference-only chips, particularly, like I said, for battery-operated devices or things in the field, it's not clear that you have enough data to do all the training. There's some people who think there's opportunities there, but conventional wisdom is in the field you're doing inference. Often you're doing it on small devices, so special, very low power devices aimed at inference. There's a huge market for that. In the cloud, you've got a lot more power and a lot more cooling, so you can have bigger, more powerful systems. You know, Google has announced uh, two, besides three generations of chips, they've announced two basically supercomputers 
the first one has a peak performance of about 11 petaflops. That's TPU version 2 in what they call a pod, which has 256 chips. And then version 3, their pod announced as 100 petaflops. And so what do these numbers mean? Well, if you use one of the measures for supercomputer performance, and this is different kind of floating point operations, these are, those are bigger operations, but nevertheless, 100 petaflops is the third fastest computer in the world using the top 500 measures. So these are amazingly powerful computers that are being constructed and these are being constructed to, to do the training phase of machine learning. I think a lot of the applications that we look at for machine learning today, a batching process works fine. Like if you're training a machine learning model to, to do image recognition, that's fine if you just batch all the images in and then you deploy the model and the model can run wherever. But if you were doing something like monitoring somebody's health and you at every you know five second interval, you want to retrain the model on the most recent health parameters, then you would you would need a much more tighter physical coupling or, or at least lower latency between the training process and the deployment process. Has there been much work around the 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 software architectures we need for more streaming, lower latency, tighter feedback loop between the the training and inference process, or are we mostly kind of in a in a time where we think about these things as as highly decoupled processes, the training versus the inference? Let me qualify. I'm not a machine learning expert here. I, I think the example you gave, though, you wouldn't be uh, using a patient's live data to train it because you know uh, medical software has to be very carefully you know certified and stuff like that. So you probably have a trained model monitoring a patient. And then you'd be caring about low latency, about as it found features that are worrisome, you'd want it to very quickly recognize it. There are people who, there are you know machine learning leaders who think this separation of training and inference, these two worlds, is, uh, is a temporary situation. If we're really going to make big progress in machine learning, systems should be training all the time and inferring all the time that those will go back together. But, you know, you should be talking to machine learning experts about that, not me. <laughs> okay. Can we impose latency constraints on ML inference today, or, yeah, or do we, we have do. highly... Okay, we do. Yeah. I mean, at Google, at the paper that we wrote about TPU version 1, we uh, pointed out that uh, you know this was an early effort, and at Google engineers talked to the internal customers and said, do you have any latency demands? And most of them said no, and the ones that did said uh, seven, 10 milliseconds, I think, at the time, or 15 milliseconds. Well, then when the hardware was built and deployed, they said, of course, you know, our latency demand is 7 milliseconds, which was kind of startling to the hardware designers. Fortunately, they had a design that worked pretty well at low latency. But I think one of the surprises in that first paper was that even in a data center, a response time is king. And so one of the reasons the TPU version one did better than the GPUs and CPUs of the time is they weren't as good under low latency constraints. Uh, kind of typically for most computer designers, they worry about the average case rather than the worst case. And fortunately, the way the TPU was designed, its worst case wasn't was much closer to its average case than a typical computer. So this kind of what's called tail latency 
for inference is important, you know, that people care about the 95th percentile or the 99th percentile in these apps that we use every day because a lot of inference apps are dealing with a human being and response time is very important for human beings. So, yeah, so one of the things that I mentioned this ML perf thing that's happening, the first thing they're doing is training, but later they're, they're going to go after inference and they're going to have to agree upon what's the latency bounds that make sense for these benchmarks, but the measure is going to be milliseconds. Uh, so it's tight timelines are going to be fundamental to inference technology. Tell me more about the MLPerf characteristics. How do you evaluate the performance of a machine learning system? It's kind of, you know, if you're a researcher, this is very exciting uh, because it's a wide open and, and it's unclear what the right answer is. If you're in a company trying to make money, it's it's scary, right? So part of this consortium of a lot of companies and universities working together is to figure this out. Uh, we decided what makes sense to do uh, for training is the performance piece of it is time to train something up to an acceptable quality level, a quality score. So, you know, what percentage of the images do you miss, right? Or what percentage do you get right? And then how long does it take to time? Uh, train that. So that's one part of it. The other parts that we wanted to do is to normalize, not normalize, to take advantage of the fact, are we talking about a chip that's in the laptop or, you know, 200 chips in the data center? How are we going to have a scale factor? We're going to go with two things. Since a lot of people use the cloud and there's an economic system in the cloud, we're going to provide relative cloud costs if you're using a cloud version of it. And the other thing we're going to do, although it's not going to be ready for what we call 0.5, is record the power that you use. So if you're using a really big system with hundreds of chips, that's going to use a lot more power. And so you'll be able to see how big a system we're dealing with. So time to train, cloud costs, power use are going to be the, the key factors there. And then later they'll do the inference ones but they'll factor in cloud costs and power as well, I think. How does the overall resource consumption of machine learning, both in terms of inference and training, how does it compare to other workloads in a data center? You mean the fraction of it or just how does it behave? Or Well, in terms of it, when, as an example, when a company like Google is looking at what is taking up an uh, you know an increasing volume uh, or increasing share of resources and what they're looking at oh we need to you know provision or we need to you know get build more data centers for these kinds of purposes like in what categories are the machine learning workloads taking up an increasing volume of resources or i guess i'm just curious how the the growing because i know that machine learning res- uh, workloads are growing i don't know if they're growing in parity with other kinds of workloads or if they're ah, you know, dwarfing the other workloads well yeah there's a paper that was done by this group at OpenAI, and they talked about kind of the bleeding edge of machine learning how rapidly are they absorbing or needing computing cycles and they measured it is going up by a factor of 10 each year. So Moore's Law is a factor of one and a half or two every year. They're saying they looked, they plotted a bunch of people's results at OpenAI and Google and elsewhere and saw at the leading edge, they could consume as much as, they, as we could build. So 
if you know if you're like me and a computer designer you love people like this <laughs> you hate people say oh you know my computer's fast enough i don't know why you're trying to build faster processors you know those aren't your <laughs> friends right you want people like i can't get my work done if you gave me 10 times as much i know immediately what i do with it and i could do great things and so it appears that certainly the training phase of machine learning that the faster bigger that we can build them they're going to put them to good use. So um, it's an exciting area there. Now, the actual way, the story of how Google got into this was like 2014, I think it was Jeff Dean said, well, look, if machine learning catches on and all of our customers start doing machine learning and we run the machine learning on the CPUs at the time, we're going to have to double the number of the data centers. And that was kind of the, oh my God, we better do custom hardware because otherwise our you know we can't afford to double the data center so that was kind of the that was the initial point that led to this and then what happened i think in the industry is when google in 2016 announced oh by the way we've decided to build our own chips for machine learning and they're 10 times better than everything else that got a lot of people's attention and then kind of led to people at other companies doing their efforts and startups and all kinds of things going on. So it's perceived that machine learning will be a much larger share of the workloads in the future, but people are, you know, are trying to guess that. And there's papers that indicate that if you gave them much bigger computers, you know, they'd know what to do with them. As you've gone from TPU version one, I think you're now on version three. Is that right? Yes. What has changed in the, that iterative process? How has the hardware architecture evolved? Uh, so there's not a lot of details that Google's released yet. We're working on a paper for TPU version 2, and we hope the program committees will accept that paper. But fundamentally, version 1 was for inference only, and versions 2 and 3 are for training revealed some details about it. One of the details is there's this thing called the IEEE floating point standard, you know, which started at Berkeley, which led to a colleague of mine getting a Turing Award, and everybody's followed that for 30 years, right? That Google said, you know, uh, the IEEE standard and floating point has the wrong balance of what's called the exponent and the matissa. It, we should change that. And they changed it going against the standard because that's better for machine learning, which is kind of scary things for computer architects, but uh, it's much more efficient and it's easier for programmers and things like that. There's been this argument all long time that numerical accuracy isn't as important in machine learning given the types of things it's doing, and Google's taken advantage of that in one of these chips, and it's one of the advantages uh, uh, that these chips are taking advantage are using to to deliver the performance thereafter. Do you have any reason to believe that there might be certain applications where higher degrees of precision are going to be important? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, what's unusual about this is tremendous excitement in the architecture community about machine learning. But if I think about that in the 80s, the software stack was pretty stable, right? The applications weren't changing left, right? But in machine learning, it's you know, things are moving at light speed, right? So it's changing fast as well. So I think what architects will tend to do is put in both optimized, narrower data, but continue to support the wider data. And then it'll be up to software to see when they can take advantage of it. What our paper talks about is a bunch of production applications that we use at Google today can take advantage of the narrow data type, but we still support the wider data types. And, you know, where the field will go is one of those things that make 
life interesting for architects. You have to try and put guess where the field's going to be in a few years because your chip lasts a long time. And are you going to be right? Or did you, did you leave something out? And that makes you wake up every day with interesting things to do. <laughs> when I talk to researchers in different areas of computer science, I sometimes feel like there's there's kind of two modes. You know, there's this one mode where you're beating your head against the wall of this one problem. You're just trying to figure it out. You're so stuck. And there's this other mode where you just feel like you're in a blue ocean and there's more interesting problems and stuff to revisit and examine than you could ever possibly get to. Do you feel like machine learning is in either of those particular categories? Good insight. Yeah, I feel like I would have said it slightly differently. I'd think there's times from a research perspective where things are pretty boring. Uh, industry's very happy what they're doing. They do the same thing every year and what they're going to do next year is going to be fine and they'll make lots of money. And then if you've got a new idea, it's really hard to get their attention. And there's other times when it's chaos and it's unclear what's the right way to go. And there's all kinds of problems that nobody knows the answer to that you, if you could figure out the answer to, they would love to embrace those ideas. And that's where we are now. In machine learning, it's, you know, there's all these companies are making very different bets, wide variety of heterogeneous architectures. And there's lots of good ideas out there, but it's not clear which is the most important idea. So there's plenty of problems at the hardware software interface machine learning for people to study you know <laughs> google's hiring right <laughs> we, we would love to get more help to investigate these ideas there's lots of people working on it so i, I think we're just going to see this you know when the hennessy and i talked about this we called it the golden age we think this next decade is going to be a golden age in computer architecture with tremendous opportunity for impact a tremendous opportunity for innovation and that applies to machine learning as as well as the architecture things you've said that a key to your success is doing one big thing at a time throughout your career that said there are places like if somebody looked at your career they would say okay he's gone he's done industry and academia at the same time or he's like spending two days at google and three days at the rise lab this sounds like he's doing multiple things at once. Oh, yeah, qualify that. Yeah, then what I think, it, it was I woke up and it was like God spoke to me, do one big thing at a time. I do other things. So I'm spending a day a week at the Rise Lab helping them. We're actually working on a Berkeley view of serverless computing, which is an exciting area to work on, and I'm helping with that. The big thing I'm doing now is, is helping Google with you know future TPU. That's the big thing I'm doing. So I try and do, I, I've kind of, per year I do one big thing. There's been times where, like I think last year I wrote, there's this open architecture, RISC five, and that a colleague and I wrote a book on that. So that was the big thing I did the prior year. So I try and do one big thing a year, but it's kind of more narrowly focused on a project rather than am I spending some time at a couple of places. I'm spending, I'm helping out wherever I can, but the big effort is around uh, future hardware for machine learning. Well, I know we're out of time, but if you have any suggestions for who to talk to about that serverless effort, I would love to talk to uh, talk to somebody about that. Oh, sure. We're finishing a draft on it, and uh, we think serverless is the future of cloud computing. And, you know, there's some challenges that have to be addressed, but it's a really interesting, exciting area. There may be some opportunities to make the security issues better. But, yeah, I talked to Jan. Yeah. New schedulers? Yeah. He cares. He's got ideas about that, too. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, Dave, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Okay. Well, thanks for inviting me. Wow. 